Welcome to another edition of the Marketing Science Podcast, the podcast for sales and marketing professionals working within science, engineering, and healthcare. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. My name is Frank Barker, the head of marketing at Azo Network, where you can also subscribe. And I'm joined by my guest today, Deborah Harsh, CEO of Brandwit Solutions, a B2B marketing firm specializing in life sciences and clinical diagnostics. Deborah has a distinguished career working for many multinational instrumentation companies and joins us here today to talk about marketing in a crisis. Deborah, good afternoon, or should I say good morning? Good morning. Rainy, drizzly morning, but good morning. Brilliant. So I gave you a brief introduction there, but would you be able to give us a, a bit more of a expand on your background on the kind of companies that you've worked in, the kind of industries that you specialize in? Um, t- tell us about yourself. I always start my career at my best first job, and that was working for Mallinckrodt, and I was selling chemistry analyzers and cell counters through distributors to veterinarians and physicians. So, you know, then from there, I went on to be um, a director of marketing communications for a super critical fluid chromatography company. So I moved from the clinical space into the life science space and then went into software. I worked, I worked for a small um, entrepreneurial company in Philadelphia by the name of Interphase. And it was great. It was, we had a great CEO. She was, uh, she had a PhD in quantum physics, really smart, think, thought outside the box. And then two months later, we got acquired by a large, um, a large corporation. I'm like, no, 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 that's not, I, I just came from that. I wanted something different. So I started Brandwith and I started Brandwith because I found that all along when I've been working with marketing companies and agencies, so they, their needs are very different. I mean, and even on the, the, the clinical side, uh, if you ever sat with a lab director, it's a different conversation than when you're just selling, you know, you're just advertising to them. So I just felt that there must be a place and a need to marry the two, right? To, to, to have that agency information, but also to know how the customer's needs is and how to develop value propositions that hit their pain points. So I started Brandwith um, in 2005. So we're 15 years old this year. So, the, you know, we kind of got here based on what our, our strength was and our knowledge set was. And I've learned a lot along the way. I mean, I've stood on well, oil well fields, all hard-hatted and special jumpsuit and shoes and the whole bit. Yeah, excellent. All right. And you mentioned the different, the various different industries that you, you work within. So how have you found that each of those industries has been affected by the current um, coronavirus um, pandemic? This is an opportunity for marketers to do something they wanted to do and been told, no, no, we don't do it that way. So it's actually a good opportunity if you want to look at it from the other side of the, of the world but um, or the other point of view. You can try stuff you don't normally try. And you've got to make sure you're sensitive to what everybody's going through, but you keep filling the void of what they need to know. Because now more than ever, they're not having the sales reps come in to pharma or into the hospitals or in the doctor's offices. So how do you reach them? And you have to find another way to do it. So reevaluate what you have, reposition it on how you're going to use it, and then make a plan. But they, they studied what happened during the Great Depression, and specifically about marketing and sales. And those that continued to market through the Great Depression came out stronger on the other end because they didn't have to start from scratch. So I would say that, that the, the thing is you got to keep marketing. You, you can't just stop marketing. You just have to find a way to do it that you can keep reaching your customers. Yeah. I mean, your customers aren't going to not use the internet during the next three to six months, are they? There's still 
And we know that we work in industries where the buying, the buyer's journey takes anywhere from, you know, a week to three, four years. Sometimes it can take, it can take so long. I've, I've seen it take seven years on, on occasion. So anyone who stops marketing now, you're going to, you're going to feel the effects sort of that lag, maybe nine months down, down the line. Um, yeah, but very interesting to get your take on it. Uh, so, okay, so how has strategic marketing evolved over the last uh, 20 years or should we say 25? This is where content, which we've been saying for a long time is king. This is where content's really important because you're right. People are researching and doing things on their own, at home, on the computer, because they're still going to go back to work. Their full mindset is we're all going to go back to work at some point, and they still have the challenges in the office that they had before. So it's really about, you know, this is the perfect time to make sure your marketing is where it needs to be. Evaluate how you're approaching your customers. You know, we have some clients that um, they have a product, but it talks to four different people, right? It talks to the person using the product. If it's software, it talks to the guy making the buying decision. It talks to the IT person who's got to make it all work. And then the C-level guy's got to sign the check. So you've got to build content that addresses those four audiences because their needs are different. What they find value is different. Yeah, um, indeed. So interesting that you mentioned uh, people reevaluating um, and maybe taking stock and, and seeing where they have gaps in their content or, or what they need to do. We've been getting a lot of uh, requests for virtual events and, and podcasts even and um, things that maybe clients wouldn't have tried necessarily before but it it takes a global pandemic to give them a kick out the door and and uh and actually it's it's funny how it that's what it takes to get some people to to try something new or change uh, but what, what are you seeing more requests for so really it's a lot of content a lot of the website um because now their website's more important than ever <laughs> it's the only interface they have and social media um recently we did a piece a white paper on digital transformation and we did this one a little differently than we normally do because we did it with stitching in three case studies. So not only were they getting information on the white paper, so that the technical piece, but they got to see how it worked. In, and it was in three different industries, actually. So one of them was a um, Moderna, actually, the, the, one of the people making the vaccines for working on the vaccines for COVID-19. The other was a, a oil and gas company and another was a food company, but it was a Great way to deliver not only the technical piece, but also marry it to the, to the content. For, for other companies, we do a lot of, you know, hosting of white papers so that, um, you can get some leads from that. Uh, we always try to marry it with case studies. So because they're quicker, they, they're a quicker read and people can see how it works in their space. Excellent. So just to pick up on the social media point there, um, we find a lot of companies find it um, hit and miss, but how would you recommend that that a company in sort of B two B, you know, life sciences or clinical diagnostics or, or just science in a broader term, how should a company address that? How should they find their voice on social media? For me, social media is like a tree, and the the trunk of that tree is the blog, and the branches of the tree are your social media channels, and the leaves are your customers, and you're constantly interacting with all of it. So the reason I suggest a blog when we do this, so when we start a process on social media, we actually do a 60-day research phase. And we understand where your competitors are. We understand where your customers go. We understand what's important and relevant to them. 
So we typically, at the end of our research phase, we actually develop a, bl a, a blog calendar. So we're posting to a calendar and we're not posting as we go. And so the clients have chance to review. And in the case of clinical clients, um, they have to go to regulatory. So they have a longer lead time between development of copy and actual posting because it's got to go through regulatory. So I guess my feeling about social media is, is I think it's a great way to reach out. And all those assets you're developing content-wise, it's a great way to put it out in social media. There are quite a few clients that we have that will do um, an article for them for internal use. And we'll also develop the blog post and the social media channel posts. So they get all of it at one time. Yeah. Yeah, good. Uh, good to see, obviously, best practice, utilizing multiple multiple channels to bring people back to that uh, the bigger bigger rock content um and then i'd say it goes even further up the chain than that from from the blog all the way to you can create ebooks from the blog posts you can create um videos podcasts in fact um we're doing some, something similar with our podcasts here and we'll be using the transcript in these to create more content as well right we've, we've had i've had people say to me oh you can't sell anything on social media no we're not selling pens in science world right we're selling bigger solutions to problems but you can give people information so that when they come to that buying decision i know that company i've seen something from them before it's it's all leading back towards that main content and those sort of we call them bottom of funnel pages so you've got top of funnel content you've got bottom of funnel bottom of funnel is more more about dr driving that conversion and getting that commitment or that sale whereas the top of funnel stuff is more about general brand awareness um making sure that people know who you are at the right time so that feeds into the next question on uh, about the customer experience now how do you view the online customer experience in 2020 you got to keep tight to your brand but you don't want to be strangled by the brand at the same time so you, you've got to try to develop a nice rhythm between the two and i think that they're valuing the online experience more and more we have to think of how we got introduced to them and the journey we want to take them through to make sure that we're addressing their needs. And when they get to their online experience, whether it's a website or a podcast or a video or, you know, whatever uh, could be an ad that we're taking them along the journey to understand that we know where they are, you know, what their issues are and how we can help address them. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, it's about uh, generating, generating value and giving the value to the audience um, in right. as fewer clicks as possible. Like you say, whether that's a website or a or a podcast, so hopefully you'll all be able to d uh, download this uh, seamlessly, and it'll it'll stream into your podcast uh, right pod podcast stream. Um, but yeah, it, it's or even if it's an app, it's about just. I think with people's attention spans today, they don't have they don't have time to tolerate anything that takes longer than five seconds. If it takes five seconds loading, then it's far too long. And that includes websites. Yeah, exactly. That is, that's a big thing because some of these websites don't load very fast. You know, they're putting a lot of stuff on the homepage where there's video and it takes a little longer to load or it doesn't translate well to phones. People, I mean, I, I don't know if you look at the web analytics for even ASIO, people are doing a lot more on their phones. Yeah, we keep a very close eye on on mobile traffic and optimizing pages using AMP, accelerated mobile pages. Um, just one quick example on that for UX, which I wanted to draw upon. Uh, we recently wrote a blog piece on how to optimize all of the different Google Ad extensions for Google Ads. Um, as it was quite complex and in-depth sub subject matter from our head of paid search, um, we decided that instead of one just you know super long video, 
uh, we'd create lots of short snippets, 30 to 60 second video clips, because um, these would be the best, most user-friendly way ways to uh, educate our audience. Um, however, by the time we'd loaded 21 videos into the blog page, as you can imagine, it loaded like a slug. So our head of UX was able to look at the problem and assist by creating a lazy load system, which enabled us to immediately display 21 thumbnails of different videos, uh, which when clicked would then begin to play. Um, and that for me is what UX is all about, making sure the customer finds exactly what they need in as fewer clicks as possible. Okay, so moving on. Uh, how has digital marketing removed the barriers for entry for smaller companies when entering new marketplaces? Yeah, um, digital marketing has made things uh, more reasonably priced, if you will, or easier access for smaller companies. The challenge for smaller companies is you've got to have a plan that makes sense and you've got to take the whole customer's experience in that journey. And and I don't see that happening a lot. I think while digital has definitely lowered the playing field with the cost of entry, the barrier to entry, if you don't do it right, you've lost time. And sometimes if you don't do it right, you've lost the customer forever. And we still have the same adage where people need to see you six to eight times before they even recognize you. You know, I'll see people say, well, I put it out there. Why aren't they calling me? <laughs> because you only put it out there once. You got to have more than that. You've got, you've got to have a situation where they see you multiple times in different places so that when that buying decision is coming or their need arises, they say, I remember that company because they've saw you somewhere. Yeah. Okay. And just to, just to steer this one a bit more towards the, the software kind of, kind of uh, dis d debate, how have um, you know, CRM and marketing automation tools, how have they allowed um, businesses to operate at, at sort of increased um, efficiency and increased um, effectiveness as well? It's not just about having a marketing automation platform and a CRM. It's about marrying the two together and the website. So we have a client that uses a very popular CRM and they use a very popular marketing automation platform. And when we redid their website, we actually stitched things into their website that married it to the marketing automation platform, which married it to the CRM. So that when someone came looking for information, it was counting how many times they came. So now we're giving information to the sales team that we know when the score reaches, I don't know, 30, the sales team has to get more engaged. We're very encouraged when people have CRMs and marketing automations, but we always say, let's make a plan. So when we have a client that goes to an event or does a show or even starts a campaign, we have a stream of what has to happen. If they open it, the branch goes this way. If they don't open it, the branch goes that way. And we enable ourselves to nurture that lead longer because these sales cycles are long. People are looking early on, but they're not ready to buy maybe for 12 months. They don't want the sales rep calling them every day, but they don't mind getting more information as they're part of that journey. So we're back to that customer journey, right? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with the lead scoring. Um, you, you mentioned lead scoring just before, but we find that the customers can be scored in two different ways and one is their explicit characteristic data so whether they're a marketing manager marketing director from the united states large blue chip organization they score points for all of these different characteristics and then on the behavioral side you know they could have they could be the best looking marketing manager on paper but they've taken no interest in your com in your company so 
they need to have maybe downloaded an ebook or watched a webinar or whatever it may listen to a podcast let's say um or even you know requested a quote explicitly you know re- requested a quote but there's d- so we kind of marry those two sets of explicit characteristic data and intrinsic um behavioral data and then combine it to to get a score um interesting to, to to get your take on that but you mentioned also before about rolling out a crm say you were rolling out a crm in a company what advice would you give to anyone who who was in that unenviable position yeah it's it's definitely an unenviable position because there's a lot of training that has to go into it i think it's getting everybody to understand what the value of the crm is right the crm is important for marketers so we can continue to market it to your customer base and encourage new sales as they come in and feed you leads that's a great value to the sales team. Sales and marketing have to work together. This is, they're in it together. You know, the, the, as I mentioned before, marketing is six to nine months ahead of sales. So sales needs to understand that. Marketing is not marketing for right this segment. They're marketing ahead. So the two of them have to work together. And I think there's some companies that encourage that working together. And there's some companies that like this fighting. And, and I don't see a value to that because I think it takes time away. And I just don't think there's a lot of money. I think you lose a lot of money, I should say, when you're fighting, when you could be working together. And I think marketing should be sensitive to sales as need too. So they should be having that dialogue. How can I make this easier for you? I mean, we need all this information, but what what things should, can we do to make it easier? Encouraging them to also pick market segments or verticals because we have a lot of clients that sell them multiple verticals. So you want to make sure you're marketing to the right vertical and you've chosen the right vertical and it matches the verticals you have in your website. So now we're back to that whole digital marketing thing where they're married to each other. Indeed, yeah. It's a recurring theme and it's come up in, in the last four podcasts that, that I've recorded. It's aligning sales and marketing. No, but it's so important because if you get it wrong, um, I've seen it in many companies where it, it's just nothing but a waste of time and time is money. It's a waste of money. So uh, make sure you get it right. Um uh, well, j- just before we do move on then, so that we, with regards to the lead scoring and, and aligning sales and marketing, say you were the, you've put on a, a webinar or a piece of marketing collateral and you've generated 500 leads, let's say, what would be your sort of take or your policy on, on passing those leads over to sales? So um, typically, so I'll, I'm going to give you an example of a webinar because it's a good example of how to market and keep sales in tune with the marketing we did a webinar for a client and they had 1,100 registrants for this webinar and over 600 people showed up. So it's about nurturing that lead, not just passing the lead off, right? So the follow-up to the webinar was, uh, for those that attended, thank you for coming. And here is the slide deck and an, an executive summary. For those that weren't able to make it, sorry, we missed you. Here's the link you know, to the webinar. Here's the executive summary. And the slide deck. And then the next piece was there was a white paper, there was a case study, and we nurtured it all along. And as they clicked, because we were using a marketing automation platform, that was being fed into Salesforce. So you're keeping the sales team aware of what's happening and then building all the content around it that matches it. We made a plan. This is the webinar we're going to talk about. We're going to do a webinar where it's not just us talking. I think that when it's just the manufacturers talking, um, it's not as valued. In the case of this particular webinar, we had two speakers, an infection, it was on the sepsis. So we had an infectious disease doctor and a clinical pharmacist. They let the questions keep being asked and they were asked for, for, we were on the webinar for 90 minutes. So we had over 30, we had over 40 minutes of questions. 
Fantastic. Now you can see uh, we, we've got a, a video link between us, so you can see I've, I've got a big smile on my face. Um, <laughs> I could I couldn't have phrased that that story any better because I've I've had it happen to myself. I've seen it happen on many occasions, and just a wry smile. Therefore, um, it, it happens all over the world. So it's yeah. But it's, it's some, so you, you know, you're, if it happens to you, you're not alone. Exactly. Um, but it, there there is stuff you can do. But you know, the interesting thing is that the questions that came up wound up giving us more information. So it helped us market better, right? So we actually did an FAQ based on the questions that were asked during the webinar, as well as the questions that were typed in. So we were actually developing content that these people needed because they were making buying decisions. Yeah. Also, when the questions are being asked, you know, recording that gold, that qualitative data against the prospect within your CRM, um, you know, we, I don't know whether it's even a webinar or, or a trade show booth. Um, if you have 10 people on a trade show booth uh, and each of them has 20 conversations across the course of a week, are all of those application issues and customer pain points and all those conversations, are they getting recorded? Probably not. Um, but are you even, but as a marketer, are you making it easy for your booth staff to multitask and have those conversations and record the data? Maybe a few drop downs or pick lists, um, you know, whilst they're having that conversation. Cause that's, that's the, tr- the tricky part, making sure that everybody knows what to do and they're standardizing their process. So we are going just, you know, beyond a badge scan here. But even when you get back, um, back to the office, you've got to make sure that your sales team and all of your team can interpret the data which you've recorded. Yeah, I think that um, the key to trade shows, so I tell clients, they'll say, oh, we're going to this trade show. And I said, so what marketing are you doing up to the trade show? Well, we're just going to the trade show. I'm like, do you realize that if you have just a 10 by 10 booth, you've invested $15,000 right there? That's $15,000. If you have a bigger booth, it's exponentially higher. If you have more people, you've pulled sales team out of the field and, and brought them to that show. That's even higher. But market to them going and then market to them on the way out, you know, and then you can marry that data into the CRM. So Frank came to the stop by the booth and we talked about, you know, a new product, product X. Now they say, okay, they're not just talking to me about a software platform. They're talking to me about a software platform works in my world. So that's really what digital marketing and this ability to do marketing automation and CRM have done. They've enabled us to target market and be smart about it. You don't need a million leads. You probably couldn't handle a thousand leads. You need at least a hundred leads, depending on the product or service that are targeted, that you can have a follow-up dialogue with, that that are real prospects. Agreed. Very good. So we we moved on to trade shows, but I think in the current environment, um, there's a lot of talk around virtual events, webinars, um, virtual meetings and exhibitions. How do you see that um, in this almost dichotomy of trade shows versus virtual events do you think they'll ever be able to replace them or will it just be are they two apples and oranges i think we're we're humans like human contact we don't like being isolated as a broad stroke comment i mean there's some people that do but but i think that we like being around other humans and we like learning and we like learning in multiple formats not just visually auditorily but kinetically so, um, I, you know, I've done a couple of these virtual trade shows and I find what happens to me is that I can, I can wander off back to my email 
And I think while virtual events are great and there are certainly ways we can still communicate and connect with each other now, I, I don't think it does away with the in-person meeting. But it's different. And you feel like it's different. I mean, we've even tried them. We talked about this earlier. We've tried Zoom family dinners. And while it's at least you're seeing and hearing each other and that's good, it's not the same. It's not the same as somebody sitting at the table and you're chit-chatting about stories. It seems more planned. But can you imagine, you know, you go to a trade show and you spend eight hours on that trade show. Can you imagine sitting in front of your computer for eight hours at a virtual trade show? I just think it's a little harder. No, yeah. I think that uh, people are, are taking advantage more of the platforms like Zoom or Teams or GoToMeeting as we're using right now. Um, and, and it is nice, whereas before you might not necessarily have flicked your webcam on now. Uh, well, before you wouldn't have flicked your webcam on, but now, you know, I kind of insist or I, I, you know, I'd stick it on because it's, I, I want to see someone else's face. <laughs> like it's, it's lonely being sat down here in my basement. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, um, it is, but it, it is, you, you can build much more of a relationship, even though it is remote it, than, than just uh, voice and text over the phone. No, I think the technology is brilliant. I think it's helpful and it definitely puts you in contact with your customers. And if, especially if they're having a problem, at least they don't feel like you're just on the phone. You don't know, you can't see. And this way, it's more of an intimate relationship. You're carrying on your relationship. Which leads us on to the next question, which is how will remote working uh, affect the future of the workplace? So we've, we use Teams a lot um, in at Azo Network. We use GoToMeeting for external calls. Um, what do you use and, and how do you see it affecting things? There's some things you have to be present for. My son's a fabricator and a welder. You have to physically go to work. You can't do it remotely, right? Um, so there's some jobs that you physically have to be present for. But I think that it this, this particular situation has proven people can work remotely and get their work done. And... So there are some companies that that didn't believe that, you know, they, they, they liked you physically in the building. And I think this has proven that that's not necessarily necessary. The nice thing is this working remotely is a plus for the environment, right? We've all seen that the sky is clearer, the waters are cleaner and mother nature is getting a sigh of relief. Like, Oh, those humans gave me a break, not a good break on our end, but, but we've given her a break. So I think that there'll be a nice handshake between those things. All right. So, just as we're looking to wrap things up now, uh, last question. What does the next five years look like? Uh, bearing in mind, we're trying to return to air quotes normal again. Um, <laughs> but what does the next five years look like for marketing uh, in, within life sciences, clinical diagnostics and healthcare, your, your areas uh, of expertise? Yeah. Um, I think this crisis is providing that the world needs science in the most important ways. Um, and every country is different in regard to this. But I think in the U.S., um, science is when it's not convenient, when we're telling when science and medicine are telling you things you don't want to hear. They just say, ah, oh, you know, it's they're just talking. They're just talking to themselves. They don't know what they're talking about. And all of a sudden now, um, science and life sciences, healthcare are really important. Uh, science will solve this. Science will win this. And, and not just, you know, the science part, but the, but the healthcare side and marketing needs to tell that story. Pfizer just released in the States and really very good. I think you can see it on YouTube. They did a very good job on their video saying, showing people in science working to solve this, that we are more connected than we think. And I think from a marketing point of view, I think we could use that. 
uh, from from everything we're marketing, whether it's ventilators or nasal swabs or, you know, research capabilities and how science is solving issues. I think that it's important that we have that human tone in our marketing. And I think that while our companies have been trying to have that more and more, people buy from people, not from companies. Um, it's about solving crises and problems. And this is marketing can tell that story. And it's part of the journey that your buyers are on right now, too. Excellent. So there you have it. Science will solve this. Uh, thanks, Deborah. Thank you. Thanks again to Deborah for a fascinating insight there. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and share us with your colleagues on Spotify, the Apple Store or at azonetwork.com. Next week, we welcome Chris Walker, CEO of Refine Labs and co-host of the State of Demand Generation podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you then.